You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The dreamers and techno optimists who build things, you know, maybe it really shouldn't be their job to also regulate themselves. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at potential antitrust suits against Facebook. I look at anti-hate speech laws in Germany that are serving as models for authoritarians around the world. And later in the show, my conversation with Jennifer Strong. She is the host of the new MIT Technology Review podcast, In Machines We Trust. While this show covers legal topics, and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we got some good stories to share this week. Uh, why don't you start things off for us? So my story is a Washington Post story from Tony Rom on their technology page. And one thing that's going to satisfy a lot of people emotionally is that Facebook is about to get sued uh, <laughs> as part of a massive antitrust lawsuit. So more than 40 attorneys general across the United States, both Republican and Democratic attorneys general, are going to file, I think the day that we're recording this, a lawsuit alleging anti-competitive, unlawful tactics on the part of the world's biggest social media company, I believe. Hmm. The particular allegation in this suit is about Facebook's purchases of Instagram and WhatsApp. They think that this represents a broader pattern of Facebook trying to neutralize competitive threats in a way that's a threat to uh, a free market, and that would violate our country's antitrust laws and our principles about fostering competition. Hmm. Uh, and this is going to be a coordinate effort with the Federal Trade Commission, which is going to be going through its own enforcement procedures as it relates to Facebook. So sort hmm. of an all-hands-on-deck against the social media giants. So they're seeking a bunch of different, uh, pretty drastic remedies. Uh, some of them would be forcing Facebook to sell off some of its business assets to address competition concerns, whether that would be them letting go of Instagram or WhatsApp. It all depends on the particulars of the case. There's some rumor that as part of this lawsuit, state attorneys general are going to petition a federal judge to require Facebook to inform them before proceeding with any significant future transactions. So this would be basically giving a judge a veto point over business transactions by forcing Facebook to disclose these potential transactions to state attorneys general. Now, by transactions, do you mean buying up other companies? Buying up and destroying other companies, yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you think de destroying is uh, is perhaps a strong term, Ben? Yes, uh, it, it is a strong maybe, term. Let's be maybe, fair uh, here. Maybe buying absorbing. <laughs> yeah. So let, let's let's look at this from Facebook's perspective, because I think that's okay. you know that's the only fair way to do it. 
So Mark Zuckerberg has said that when Facebook purchases, you know, the Instagrams and WhatsApps of the world, he, Zuckerberg, and Facebook is allowing these companies to grow into viable services in a larger market. Uh, And he said that there are other competitors in the market, such as TikTok, which Facebook has not purchased, that are still able to thrive. Um, The official statement from uh, a Facebook spokesman, so kind of the company line on this is, quote, a strong competitive landscape existed at the time of both acquisitions. This was looked at by regulators, et cetera, and they rightly did not see any reason to stop these regulators. But I think what these attorneys general are going to allege, and it's backed up by significant evidence, is wide-ranging pattern of anti-competitive behavior, anti-competitive tactics, uh, etc. As it relates to WhatsApp in particular, Facebook, when it purchased WhatsApp, promised that it would maintain the end-to-end encryption that makes WhatsApp so popular. But, you know, Facebook has kind of abandoned that as a goal. They've sought to integrate their user data with Facebook's other social networking services, which Mm -hmm. goes against sort of the spirit of WhatsApp. It's it's raison d'etre. Part of my poor French pronunciation there. <laughs> the other side of this could be that when Facebook has purchased these companies, it's not like they purchased them in order to shut them down. They kept running. They kept doing the things they were doing. Right. It's not like Peter Thiel, you know, buying Gawker for the purpose of shutting it down. That's true. Right. And it's also not like they already had their own existing version of WhatsApp and then they bought WhatsApp in order to shut down WhatsApp to eliminate the competition that way. So, I mean, I suppose this is the the broader definition of competition by anything that is a social media platform online. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, that's going to be Facebook's defense is we made these purchases as part of a mutual agreement with these companies so that we could increase these companies in prominence, you know, pay them off, use our leverage as the biggest social media giant out there to promote this product and to foster its development. And that's consistent with fair competitive trade practices. You know, I think what the government is going to allege is that these are actually anti-competitive practices. You know, sometimes Facebook, because they have this trove of information on all of us and on these companies in particular, they've tried to weaponize it to quash potential rival developers, sometimes using kind of quasi-intelligence methods because, you know, oftentimes... Their competitors uh, have users log in via their Facebook accounts. And so Facebook has access to that information. You know, and, and the lawsuit is also expected to mention the fact that Facebook is so ubiquitous. It occupies all of our eyeballs with its billions of users across the world. And when it purchases these platforms to collect a greater share of advertising dollars, which in turn allows it to augment its own power. Um, It has more money and can invest in more smaller companies. You know, this is sort of what Teddy Roosevelt tried to do in the early 1900s in the progressive era was to prevent this type of consolidation from happening. This exact scenario where one company becomes too powerful, they can leverage their financial assets and their influence to further erode competition. And eventually this filters down and negatively impacts the user experience. And I think that's what the allegation is going to be here. Users are losing competition among social media services and also some of the features that they appreciated uh, from some of these companies that Facebook purchased, like end-to-end encryption, that type of thing. Mm. Yeah, I, this is sort of the the opening salvo, you know, and 
I think for people who are critics of, of Facebook, this is a day to, to crack open the champagne, but not a day to spray <laughs> champagne across the locker room as if you right. just run the World Series. As you say, this is the opening salvo. Is there talk that this is the first of many steps? Because I, I would imagine there are folks who say, you know, this is sort of nipping around the edges where Facebook proper is is the real issue here. Yeah, my inkling here, and I think I'm right about this, is this is the start of what's going to be a 10-year to 15-year project uh, on the Hmm. part of regulators at both the state and federal level to cut against the anti-competitive practices of Facebook and other social media giants. These types of suits take forever because, you know, the extent of discovery that's going to have to happen to build a case like this is just so vast Uh, There's going to be dueling motions. I mean, we're talking about attorneys general, and we're also talking about Facebook. I mean, they have pretty much unlimited resources to use every legal tool at their disposal to try and get this dismissed or, Hmm. uh, you know, to to try and cut against some of these allegations. So we're going to be in for really a long process without any reasonable prospect for resolution in the short term. What that means is that this is as much a political statement as it is a legal filing. It's sort of a shot across the bow to Facebook saying you might in the future have to face some accountability. And in turn, you know, that might inspire Facebook to check itself as it relates to its anti-competitive practices. And that might be sort of some of the motivation here. Even if this particular case is going to go on for 10 years when, you know, the federal judge who's been assigned to this case has retired and (laughs) moved to the villages in Florida or something, I I, I still think this is... So much of this is is symbolic. and Second is, term of Eric Trump's presidency. Yeah, <laughs> I think we might be getting into Baron Trump's presidency by the okay, time this okay. case is resolved. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. So yeah, th- this is the start. You know, I think it's important and notable that perhaps for different reasons, this has some bipartisan appeal. Uh, it's being led by Tish James, who's the attorney general in New York State. Obviously, um, she's somebody uh, who comes from the liberal side of the political spectrum. But there are a lot of very conservative AGs, attorneys general across the country, who are, are joining this lawsuit and are just as skeptical of Facebook and critical of its anti-competitive practices. So giving it a bipartisan veneer, I think, separates it from a lot of other political and legal issues where people kind of retreat into their own ideological corners. And that might give this lawsuit a little bit more staying power. Now, looking at the, the big picture here, you know, my recollection from you know, back when I was a, a young lad was uh, the breakup of AT&T. Is that the last time we've had the government coming at something this big? Because it seems to me like certainly lately there's been very little pushback on consolidation of power like this. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest case in in relative recent history that might measure up to this was US v. Microsoft back in the very early 2000s. That was probably the most high-profile case under our uh, antitrust laws, the Sherman Act, back in 2001 in front of the D.C. Circuit. And that was, you know probably one of the first antitrust cases dealing in this this digital world. But it has been a, a long time, and we, we don't trust bust the way that it was envisioned some 110 years ago, particularly since the 1980s. I mean, we've given corporations uh, in all industries a lot of leeway to consolidate, to purchase smaller companies, all in the name of supporting the free market. So you're right that th- this really isn't 
um, something that that's very common. We don't see a lot of antitrust cases in the technology industry or frankly in, in any industry. So there is something that's kind of novel about this. You know, I'd know that if I were a dictator or if, you know, God forbid, or if somebody who was smarter than me were a dictator and I could influence them, <laughs> I'd, I'd instigate a lot more antitrust lawsuits in a lot of different industries because I think there are a lot of anti-competitive business practices out there. There are yeah. a lot of reasons why that, that does not happen, but it makes it that much more significant when we do see a, a case like this. Yeah, I, I'm. I have to say personally, I, I'm very cynical about this sort of thing. I mean, I think about, you know, the when, whenever we have these consolidations, I think about you know cable TV companies buying up their competitors and and broadcast companies and publishing companies, and they all go before the regulators and they say this will be good for consumers and. That never happens. It's never good. It's never, we always end up with higher fees, terrible customer service. I don't know. It's like we keep. It's like Charlie Brown of the football. You know. We yes, keep, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> You're a hundred percent right. My frame of reference, and those are both good frames of reference for me. It's yeah. always the airline industry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think part of it is that you know I'm not that old, but as a kid, air travel was very different because there was a lot more competition for domestic air travel. So there mm-hmm. weren't things like checked baggage fees, all the sort of nickel and diming uh, that happens right. now. Flights were more comfortable. You weren't packed in like sardines. People used to dress up to get on an airplane. Right. And <laughs> I think that- airlines really <laughs> valued customer service because as, as right. they used to say, you know, I know on United, the announcement would always be, we know you have a choice of airlines. Um, turns out we don't really have much of a choice of airlines anymore. Uh, yeah. There's like four main domestic carriers because they all, you know, purchased up their competition. And of course, the consumer has suffered. Yes, as a general proposition, you know, flights are probably cheaper than they were a generation yeah. ago. But yep. in terms of the user experience, it is considerably worse. And that's what happens with uh, industry consolidation. And so I think that's the fear here is that, particularly in the context of protecting our privacy, once Facebook controls the entire market, they have less incentive to care about the user experience. Right, right. It's like that old Lily Tomlin comedy routine. We don't she care. Was, uh, yeah. We're, we're, we're the phone company. We don't have to care. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. exactly what it is. That's exactly what yeah. it is. Yep, yep. Good times, good times. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, interesting story, and we will buckle up and uh, and for the next decade or more to watch how this plays out, right? Yeah, they're going to have to have to keep this podcast going for a decade so we can follow yeah. the, the progression of this case. Oh, boy. Yeah, buckle up, Buttercup. Here we yep. go. All right. My story this week uh, comes from the folks over at uh, Foreign Policy. It's titled, Germany's Online Crackdowns Inspire the World's Dictators. This is an interesting case of perhaps uh, unintended consequences, and I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, your thoughts here, Ben. So uh, the German government was dealing with a bunch of uh, right-wing extremist violence, and one of the ways that they uh, pushed back on this is they, they enacted tough new measures against online hate speech. And part of this involves having restrictions on the social media companies like Facebook. And initially, Facebook had agreed to a voluntary deal where they would remove content that Germany had deemed illegal 
within 24 hours. But surprise, surprise, Facebook was a little slower than the, the German officials would like them to have been. Uh, <laughs> Man, we're really ganging up on them today. I know. Well, I have a feeling gosh. they're going to delete some of my pictures in retaliation right, or something. Right, right, exactly. Poor Facebook, poor yeah. Facebook. They enacted a new law which imposed what they call an intermediary liability for social media networks. And with this, any content which is manifestly unlawful must be removed in a time frame of 24 hours. For all other unlawful content, the deadline is seven days, and failure to remove illegal content is punishable by fines of up to 50 million euros, which is about $55 million. Now, the folks who look out for these sorts of things, uh, they say that this gives the private sector the role of policing this sort of online free speech, and there isn't any transparency or due process. And what's interesting about this is that some authoritarians around the world, uh, countries who are not so interested in free speech, have basically taken this example from Germany and copied and pasted it into their own rules for online discourse and are using it to clamp down on free speech. So, you know, again, the folks who uh, are interested in free speech around the world, they're saying, be careful what you ask for. This is, uh, Germany went at this with all good intentions, of course, but be careful of unintended consequences. What do you think here, Ben? It's a fascinating story. I mean, I think we have to look at this from a couple of different angles. Germany comes from a unique place in their political history. Right. As part of their kind of denazification process, they have relatively not anti-free speech statutes or, or practices, but they have a culture of prohibiting speech that evokes its most morally objectionable period. So, you know, you are prohibited from spewing Nazi propaganda in Germany in a way that you are not prohibited from doing in the United States. And that's part of their political culture born out of their history. So I really do trust that they had good intentions here. And we talk about all the time the danger of disinformation or abuse and harassment that comes from online communication. So I think you have to respect, you know, if not the means to achieving this goal, you have to respect the goal in and of itself. But I think the broader lesson here is the slippery slope once you institute these types of content-based restrictions on speech. Um, And that's why our political culture is so gung-ho about protecting our First Amendment rights and protecting against these types of content-based restrictions where the government or the private sector are regulating certain categories of speech. Because that Mm -hmm. can lead you to a place, like this article mentions, where governments uh, might start censoring criticism of themselves or other information that they think would be harmful for the public to see because, you know, that might cut against the government's own propaganda efforts. So right. I think there there really is a lesson there. It is the law of unintended consequences. I don't think when Germany passed this law, they were considering that authoritarian countries would use this as a model in their own countries to stifle opposition, to stifle criticism of the government. But that is the logical endpoints of many of these types of laws. And it kind of, despite all of the trouble that comes with it, it kind of makes you appreciate our own political culture, which is generally very skeptical of these types of laws. 
Yeah. One of the things this article points out that was interesting to me is that this provides cover for those authoritarian governments. They can say, look, we're doing the same thing that Germany does. We're not yeah. doing anything different. Germany is a, a country that's committed to democracy and the rule of law and human rights. And, uh, you know, we've pretty much just copied uh, their policies. So to the rest of the world, uh, you know, what, what's your beef here? We're, we're just following the pattern of powerful democracy from Europe. Right. This is an advanced Western democracy. They're very enlightened. All we did is, is copy and paste their statue. I mean, so much of it is going to be in the enforcement of it and what kind of speech is considered the type of speech that could be censored on social media platforms. That's really where the leeway comes in. So, you know, that's why Germany parsing out this language and the statute, if it is going to be adapted by authoritarian countries, that's that's when it becomes dangerous. Because I don't think Germany has the intention or even does enforce this in a way that stifles legitimate political opposition. Uh, mm -hmm, but the plain letter mm -hmm. of the law would allow governments to do this. And that's exactly what they have been doing in countries like Venezuela, Vietnam, India, Russia, Malaysia, and Kenya are the ones that they mention uh, in this article. And, you know, the definitions that these governments come up with of the type of speech that can be banned ends up being overly broad. Um, they talk about a Russian bill that was signed into law by Vladimir Putin in their purely constitutional process that bans, quote, unreliable information. And that definition, you know, is one of the broadest, uh, some of the broadest uh, legal terms of art that I've ever heard. Uh, mm -hmm. It's socially significant information disseminated under the guise of reliable messages, which creates a threat to life or the health of citizens or property, the threat of mass disturbance of public order and or public safety, or the threat of creating or impairing the proper operation of vital elements of transport or social infrastructure, credit institutions, energy facilities, industry or communications. That can pretty much encompass any type of speech that the government might want to regulate. Yeah. So it really is overly broad. And again, uh, I think the point of this article is they can say, well, we're not doing anything different than this enlightened first world democracy in Germany. So, I, you know, I think the fact that Germany's coming to this with the best of intentions, as you say, it, it really is the law of unintended consequences here. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, as always, we'll have links to uh, the sources of our stories in the show notes. So we encourage you to check that out. It's time to move on to our listener on the line. Our note this week comes from someone who has requested anonymity, so we will respect that. Uh, and they write, um, I live in South Africa, and they are in the process of passing a new cybercrimes bill. Essentially, what they are proposing, if I understand it correctly, is that they want to hold people liable for the messages they send on messaging services. This is all good and well, but what baffles me a little about this process is how they would get access to these messages. They state that the bill also imposes obligations on electronic communication service providers and financial institutions to assist in the investigation of cybercrimes. Surely this is not feasible because if WhatsApp is really making use of end-to-end -end encryption services, they shouldn't be able to access your messages. I'm not asking for a critique of our regulations as you wouldn't be familiar with them, but rather I'm using it as an introduction to my question below. Question. Regulations regarding the privacy of instant messaging platforms are probably highly specialized to a country or state, so I just want to know what these processes look like in the U.S. If I'm a victim of verbal abuse via WhatsApp, I can surrender those messages willingly. However, if I am in a group and get approached by law enforcement asking for screenshots of chats, what recourse would one have to deny the request? 
What about other institutions, such as your employer, making such a request for an internal investigation? The question Ben would pose is, what does a reasonable expectation of privacy look like on messaging services, not public forums like Twitter, but private ones? I suppose one would need to be very careful when denying a request because if someone else obliges such a request, you may be able to be seen as complicit in whatever act was being perpetrated, possibly indicating that we don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. All right, Ben, uh, there's a lot here, but I think it's a very interesting question. What do you make of this? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. I'm very glad this listener wrote in. So a couple of things here. The great thing about WhatsApp and its end-to-end encryption is WhatsApp itself doesn't have access to these communications. Right. Which means the government can ask for it. You know, you have no obligation to disclose those messages in, in any legal sense in most circumstances. And the third party doesn't have access to these communications themselves. So they are completely out of luck as it relates to those end-to-end encrypted applications. Even on other services where you don't have end-to-end encryption, you know, you're just your email transactions. The prevailing wisdom in our legal system is that you do have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the content of your communications. Um, I think the most prominent court case came came from a circuit court case back in 2010 uh, called Warshock v. United States, which generally held for the proposition that you do have Fourth Amendment's rights in the contents of the communications of your emails, of your other stored online communications, and the government generally needs a warrant uh, to access those. I should mention there's been a legislative effort as it relates to both just your standard stored communications and, frankly, uh, encrypted applications to cut against these rights and to give the government uh, a mandatory backdoor to access these communications for law enforcement purposes. We've Mm -hmm. talked about legislative efforts in the United States Congress to do that, I know that's something that's been supported by the current Attorney General of the United States, William Barr. So this is a dynamic area of the law that's subject to change. But for practical purposes, I mean, you do have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the content of your communications. That's something that our court system has emphasized repeatedly. I mean, uh, a case I always think of in the context of these questions is Riley v. California, where The Supreme Court said the government needs a warrant to access a cell phone incident to arrest because, you know, cell phones are basically part of our bodies. They contain all of our deepest and and darkest secrets. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so we certainly have an expectation of privacy in the contents of our cell phone. I think that's a principle that's been pretty strongly adopted by the Supreme Court. Well, there's a couple other details here that uh, this listener is asking about. First of all, what about in a group chat? Is there anything different that comes into play in a situation like that? It's not different in a group chat in terms of access by law enforcement. I mean, the risk you run in a group chat is that members of the group have access to those encrypted communications. Right. Somebody's going to rat you out. Someone's going to rat you out, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you have no reasonable, you've lost a reasonable expectation of privacy. You, in other words, you should not trust your friends in the group chat. Right, um, right. We've talked about these types of cases a million times, but I mean, this is a principle that developed where the mafia cases back in the 1960s and 1970s where, uh. you know, people would divulge incriminating information to their buddy who was wearing a wire. They'd say, well, you know, this is a violation of of my Fourth Amendment rights. You have no control over the person that you tell information to. Once you've told them that information, 
you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. If they want to rat you out to the government, you're basically out of luck in those circumstances. If every member of the group, though, wants to protect those private encrypted communications, then those same constitutional rights that I discussed certainly still apply. How about for the employer for an an internal investigation? That, That gets, you know, a little bit more complicated. I mean, you generally have fewer rights as it relates to your employer because, Mm -hmm. you know, there there could be some term of your employment that grants them access to all, you know, online communications in the course of your employment. And, you know, so when we're talking about end-to-end encrypted applications, I don't think you have any obligation to retain those if you don't want to. I don't think your employer would have a, a cause of action, you know, but I think there is more of an expectation when you're talking about one's individual employer that you don't have as much of an expectation of privacy. But they do, particularly when we're talking about things you do in the course of your employment, that they might have access to those communications. So you have to be a little bit more careful in that context. Right. Certainly if you're using a device that belongs to them, if you're using a, you know, an, an email account that is provided by them, then all bets are off. Yes. Yeah. And it's a little bit different when they're trying to get information from a device that they don't own. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your own personal device that maybe you were using for work purposes. So much of that right. gets into, you know, just the terms of employment that come in, you know, that brings in elements of contract law. So that gets a, a little bit more complicated when we're talking about protecting information from your employer. But, you know, generally, you have a lesser expectation of privacy relative to your employer than you do relative to the government, certainly. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, our listener for sending in uh, those thoughtful questions. Good stuff. We would love to hear from you. You can uh, call us and leave us a message. It's 410-618-3720. We might use it on the show. You can also send us a message to caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. Ben, I recently uh, had a great conversation with Jennifer Strong. She is the host of the MIT Technology Review podcast, In Machines We Trust. Uh, Our conversation focused on AI and some of the things that uh, she's tracking with the folks on that podcast. Here's my conversation with Jennifer Strong. I wanted to make a show about AI or artificial intelligence for everybody for a few years now and met my editor-in-chief, Gideon Litchfield, at a conference, and I told him, I want to make the planet money of AI. And he said, okay, Hmm. fine. So, um, you know, it was a hard sell, right? Because AI is one of those topics where people, like their ears just close and they kind of tune out. It's not 
the assumption is it's not for me. It doesn't really apply to me. And you and I both know that's not true. <laughs> so that's uh, where I went just to make a show for everybody about AI. One of the things that strikes me about AI, and I noticed like you all did a, a special episode to just describe what AI is. And I think in the general public's mind, it's a very fuzzy concept. Is that a bit of an uphill battle for you of, of putting guardrails on what we're talking about here? Yes and no. I think if we think about it for a minute, like AI is now being used to automate decisions about all these areas of our lives. So I think with like the general public or when I call and explain this to my dad, it's like, mm. no, no, this decides who goes to jail on some level, right? It helps inform who we arrest and who we give bail to and whether you get a mortgage or, you know, whether you look like you're cheating on an exam, whether you get into college. So databases that look at you as you're shopping for groceries and decide whether you might be a shoplifter from some database somewhere. Like, I don't think it's that heavy of a lift if you just talk about what it means to you and talk about people who've been impacted, right? I think that's all these stories, but that's my, I'm not a tech person. I covered policy for public radio um, is my background. And, you know, you get sent out on these stories like budgets, right? Or um, mm. policies that may mean a lot to someone and nothing to the other. These are all people stories. So if you make anything a people story, then it's an everybody story because we're all people. Yeah. One of the things that you point out on the show is this reality that so much of what's going on behind the scenes with AI is happening in private. It's it's not in public view, that these are largely private companies who are cooking up these algorithms in secret, and that may be at our own peril. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of it's malicious, right? I just think mm. that we are in an interdisciplinary world in ways we never have been. Like you go into a lab at pretty much any university and you see all these different folks working together who you know, not that long ago, it just would have been unheard of. And so now it's like, it's not really, you know, judges don't build algorithms and the folks who do aren't judges, but yet these things, like who's in charge, I guess, and whose job is it to regulate these things or talk about these things or disclose these things? And I think that's what we're going to be struggling with. We have been for a decade, right? You go back to like mm -hmm. Eric Schmidt, you know, good to like mm. 2011, right? When he was saying, oh, it'll be, yeah, democracies, this will all be regulated really quickly. And here we are in 2020, all saying, hey, we should really regulate this stuff. And I think once we decide like who, like where the buck stops, right? And how to approach it, it's just a question of when that happens. Yeah, you know, I think back that you know, there was a time here in the U.S. before we had a Food and Drug Administration, and, you know, anybody could mix up their elixirs and, and distribute them. And because of that, some people died. And now we have a Food and Drug Administration. And, and I don't think it's too far off to, to wonder if we need something like that for some of these social media platforms to say, before you release this to the general public, we need it tested. We need it verified. We need someone with authority to look over it and make sure it's not going to do some damage. Yeah, I make a point a few times in the show that like cars had to exist before we knew we needed seatbelts. Hmm. And I think that's going to be the way here too. There's a lot of things we don't know the outcome until they're created, right? Um, we don't know what we need until we do. A lot of this stuff raises questions about consent. A lot of it 
to me anyway. Like I, I think as a tech reporter who writes about Face ID and who lives here with kids and drives around, I um didn't know about Face ID being used at the toll booths that we drive through all the time until until I did, right? And now that I do, I can't unsee it. And I just, I think there's going to be an aha moment for probably most folks where they realize that they need to participate, ask questions. And that's really what all I'm trying to do is just let people know what exists, find out what exists and start a conversation. Well, in several of your episodes uh, go through facial recognition and, and how it's being used. Can you take us through some of the things you learned there? <laughs> well, we we did four parts on facial recognition and policing. And it's such a meaty, truly a meaty topic for us. We've gone and we visited other topics like emotion AI and, and looking you know, COVID uh, tracking. We've, we've worked on other topics as well, but we're returning to do four more on face ID, just because again, it's, it's a meaty topic for us because it's easy to show people where it is and, and what it might, you know, mean to them personally, like where they'll find it. Anyway, in terms of what we learned with, with policing, what we learned is that police departments are struggling with this topic in towns big and small, and they're all coming to different conclusions. And there's not any like overarching policy or set of plans in place. Some folks are fine using Clearview, which operates by comparing their images um, against our social media images that we don't keep private. Others don't think that that's okay. And so they won't use Clearview. Some just build their own databases. Like one of the oldest databases is um, in Florida. You've got some folks who will use celebrity lookalikes, meaning there was a beer thief in New York City. The guys, they couldn't get a match when they ran uh, photos from the cameras. I mean, you think also with Face ID, like it really works if you have a face level, straight on, well lit image. And we all know that's just not how like the camera up on the ceiling works, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes, or if somebody's blinking or it's like, I don't know if you ever use the software in your phone, like you look through your images and it'll point out the faces and sometimes it doesn't see the face. Well, if somebody's blinking, yawning in profile, it may not see the face at all. So right. some folks doctor the images, some hold up celebrity lookalikes. So in the case of this beer thief in New York City, Police like, oh, it looks a little bit like Woody Allen. They couldn't get a match with the face, but when they held up Woody Allen's face, they found a match and eventually led him to this guy. Hmm. So some places are fine with that. Some places are really not fine with that. And it just gets back to that kind of the Wild West right now. We And who in the end gets to decide what is fair play? And there, there are real stakes here. I mean, you go into the story about uh, the gentleman who is falsely accused based on facial recognition. He didn't do it. No, no, not only did he not do it, uh, he, uh, this was a man outside Detroit who gets a call at work. And he's now fairly well known right after um, this uh, made some pretty big headlines this summer. But anyway, back in January of, of this year, he's at work and he gets a call from police saying, come turn yourself in. And he's like, he thought it was a prank call, but it wasn't a prank call. And when he got home from work, there were police in his driveway and they blocked him in and they arrested him in front of his kids and they took him to jail. And he had no idea what was going on. It was uh, for a crime, stealing watches, crime he didn't commit. He was there overnight before they even told him what this was about. And it was kind of an accident that they let him know that they'd used Face ID to name him. And, you know, Hmm. Detroit has since decided we're only going to use this for violent crimes. Also, it sounds like the officers didn't use it the way it was intended. Like, you know, I quoted to me several times been folks saying, well, just because I call and say, I think my neighbor did this thing. It doesn't mean you go arrest this person's neighbor. Like you're supposed to take some more steps here, folks, to be sure you're going to go put cuffs on someone who you believe committed something beyond the computer said so. There are stakes too, I think, if you're in a store and 
something goes off saying that you've previously stolen, you know, like a shoplifting database uh, suggests that you might be a match to somebody they have, or, you know, if you're unable to get benefits. I mean, something else that's of interest to me now that I'm only starting to dig a little deeper into, you know, homeless services, you need to identify someone coming into a shelter just for safety, but also before you can start any other type of process with these folks, they're unlikely to have a bunch of documents on them or ID. So hmm. Face ID has been used for a while in Calgary, you know, Canada in particular. Okay, well, what does that mean? How? What kind of rules can we put around this so that things are done fairly? Well, and, and even basic privacy, the ability to be anonymous. You know, I can think of, of you know folks going to a political meeting or going to a you know someone going to a gay bar or or right. a, a medical clinic, something like that. You know, between point A and point B, who knows how many times they've walked by some sort of camera that uh, IDs them and, and puts a, a pin in the map that they were in this location. Well, we talk about that, too, in the first four parts in the series. Or what if there is a camera outside of an Alcohol Anonymous meeting, the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting door? Like, mm. Also with the protests, there are a number of examples. Well, you think about, too, the difference between public property and private property. Like when you're in a park that's adjacent to the mall, right? As you walk, as I did in London uh, with one of the sources, we were talking about London's trials of um, live face ID. And okay, well, what happens, as you know, what happens with data when it's public data versus private data, you know, can be completely different things. Um, so just crossing the street can have different ramifications for what happens with, mm. you know, data from your face with your biometric data. And that's, you know, in a place that has GDPR. So what does it mean in the U.S.? Mm, nobody knows. Is there a basic mismatch between the rate at which policy is able to keep up with technology? It seems to me like we say this, you know, technology is getting faster and the rate of change seems to be increasing also. But I don't think we necessarily see that tracking the same way on the policy side of things. I mean, we make jokes about how our, you know, our representatives are generally uh, older people who may not be in touch with this, the bleeding edge of technology. Do you track that issue as well? I think that's always been an issue, right? <laughs> like mm. going back to that whole seatbelt example that cars had to exist and we had to know what, you know, that we needed them, needed seatbelts before they could be invented. So I don't think that's new. Yeah, is it a problem? Uh, getting back to that, who is supposed to be the one to know what it is we need? Is it folks who call it the Facebook? Or are we letting the people creating the technologies decide how best to regulate what it is they make? Folks at Georgetown Law have pointed out, rightfully, it's a, you know the push comes from industry, but is it really a push for regulation or just a push to know how it is they will be regulated so that they can build it into their business plan? Like, I think the reason that we don't see more policy is we don't yet know who it is who's going to be responsible, right, for coming up with it. And and so these interviews that I've done with these tech founders and CEOs who've created a number of these products that are now being used at scale, I think of like uh, InTech Labs creator in Moscow has created one of the largest live facial recognition systems in the world. You've got 100,000 cameras looking at a lot of different kinds of data at once, right? You're not just running face ID, but you're also scanning license plates. You're looking at how close people are standing, whether they're wearing a mask. Like there's a ton of different things you can pull through the same video feed. And there's, you know, a billion faces read 
at a, in a month there. So anyway, his line was, well, you know, it's up to people to decide what kind of world they want to live in. And that's kind of the same from Clearview. It's like, well, you know, we're, we're just here. We'll do what everybody says. It should be regulated. Hey, maybe somebody will regulate it. Okay. Well, is it really up to you and me? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's easy to be cynical and, and think about, you know, compare to someone, you know, dumping chemicals into a river or a lake or something and, say, and saying, you know, well, maybe somebody should regulate this. You know, do, do you, do right. you, do, are you not aware that you're harming the river here? That is a cynical outlook, but I don't think it's completely well, off base. Yes. And the dreamers and techno optimists who build things, you know, maybe it really shouldn't their job to also regulate themselves. Mm. What has this experience been like for you as you've been on this exploration and talking to the people you've been talking to? Are, are there any things that really stick out to you in terms of things you've learned or maybe uh, you know change the way that you look at things? All right. Well, I'm an inherently curious person, so mm. we'll just start from there. And new to a number of these things. Like I was not covering specifically AI five years ago. The tape from Governor Cuomo talking about ear recognition, that was definitely one of those moments where I had to pause and rewind and say, wait, did he just say that we're trying to read people's ears? Huh. Uh, and yes, and apparently this is not not new. I, you know, there's people have been trying to work on this for quite some time. But if you're driving through a tunnel and, and you're, uh, you're a passenger in the windshield and profile, apparently reading ears could be useful. There've been a number of moments where maybe it's captured the imagination. Maybe it's a little creepy. Maybe it's just the fact that I'm kind of nerdy and interested in everything. But mm -hmm. mostly again, I just, whether it was the, the cameras in stores, the, the cameras going through, um, as you're driving, I, the cross the sidewalk, you know, cross the street to a different sidewalk and suddenly your data is going somewhere totally different. Thinking about what this could mean for anything like like your social uh, social media profile impacting your insurance rates, like what it means for your kids. So all of our kids on Zoom school right now, like mine in the other room here, and, and realizing that when their tests are being proctored, right, there's a decent chance that AI is deciding whether or not they're being honest. Thinking about ways in which it could be super useful for our cars to know that we might be drowsier, that, you know, if they could engage with our, our Fitbits or our smartwatches or whatever else and, and know that maybe we're a little short on sleep or, you know, that we're in a hurry, and help us out. The flip side is like, okay, five years from now, what does our data trail look like? And what does it mean? Right. And who's in control of it? Right. And I yeah. think at least the path we're on, the answer is nobody and nothing, <laughs> maybe. Mm. And everything. It sort of depends. That's what gets back to the heart of why I want us to have all these conversations. Not because I claim to have any answers or suggestions for the way forward. I just want us to all be having the conversation so that maybe we can come up with something. All right, Ben, what do you think? You know, some of these interviews are uplifting. <laughs> this one, not so much. <laughs> it, it, it kind of got into a dark place. That was an excellent uh, interview, and, and she yeah. uh, gives some great insight. She's obviously smart in her field, highly recommend her podcast. But it kind of left me in a place where I worry about where we're going to be vis-a-vis -vis our private information in, in five to 10 years. I have the metaphor she gave about how we needed to drive cars before we knew we needed seatbelts was hmm. just very apt that relates to tech companies collecting our, our private information. We need to use them before we know how much privacy we need. And that leaves us all vulnerable, particularly when we have policymakers that are 
not very dynamic, that don't adapt along with uh, technology, where there's often the significant lag time. So, you know, I don't know about you, but it, it certainly didn't leave me in a happy place. <laughs> no, I mean, a cautionary tale. But as you say, great to have Jennifer on our show. Uh, I highly recommend uh, the In Machines We Trust uh, podcast. Really well done. Really uh, interesting stuff over there. So uh, worth a listen. Check it out. And we appreciate Jennifer taking the time to join us. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Ivan. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>